Hi, and welcome to the latest episode of SEPADPOD, the Sectarianism, Proxies, and Desectarianization podcast based at Lancaster University. Today, I've got a very special guest on the show to talk about recent events relating to COVID-19 and oil. I'm delighted to say that my friend, colleague, Daniel Rad is joining us to talk about all of these things. Daniel is Bureau Chief for the Business News Europe. He's a journalist. He spent a long time living in Iran. He's the founder of the Living in Tehran website, which I urge you all to go and have a look at it's fascinating um, he's now living in Lancaster and uh, I'm delighted to say that he's joining me remotely via Skype so Daniel thank you for joining us today thanks very much for having me uh, it's a pleasure so Daniel I guess we need to start with the the question of, of what prompted your your involvement with Iran and and indeed Central Asia um, historically my family are from the Caucasus and also Iran um, and obviously, uh, having a background, uh, familiar history in this, uh, I took the experience a decade ago to move over there and to work over in Iran and um, experience it firsthand. Right, okay. So what were you doing in Iran, just, just briefly, if you don't mind telling us? Sure. Um, so I've worked uh, in several media entities over there. I've uh, edited several magazines, uh, helped found the uh, Financial Tribune newspaper, uh, also, another website uh, editorial called Borsum Bazaar, uh, one of our uh, several entities that we created. And also, the, more recently, uh, in the past few years, we created Living in Tehran, which was a, a more soft news website about the daily activities of a capital city of 12 million people. Amazing. But, uh, full-time, uh, I, uh, more recently, I've been covering uh, articles as Bureau Chief for BD, which is a, a Eurasia focused business news network. Fantastic. Daniel, just tell us a little bit about Living in Tehran, the, the website, please, and then we'll go on to more recent events. But I think it's such a wonderful thing that you've done there that, that people who aren't aware of it really should be. So um, there is a small uh, population of expatriates, and obviously there's a quite large um, uh, community of Iranians abroad who all want to know what's going on in their home city uh, so it was devised as an idea to try and raise the profile of the city rather than the country and to detract from the daily polit political news that's being broadcast out of Iran and to give a, a slightly different angle on uh, uh, the city life uh, to which many people are familiar with. Fantastic. Are there any particular highlights of that time then that that made it onto the website? Any particular things that really resonated with you and uh, and your colleagues? So um, one of the uh, interesting uh, phenomenons we saw was the uh, growth in international cuisine uh, in the city. Uh, we saw many international brands opening up. Uh, including Finnish burger chains and uh, uh, all on the back of the JCPOA uh, in uh, 2016 onwards. Right. Uh, uh, sushi, uh, French sushi chains also opened up. French um, sushi chains? Yeah, French ones, which was quite unique. <laughs> yeah. And um, uh, generally a lot of investment in, in the uh, sectors that you know people enjoyed. Uh, which was quite a refreshing change uh, from uh, the staple diet of 
uh, kebabs and uh, horests <laughs> a lot of people eat over there. So, uh, Which are, was, are delicious, I should say. But um, absolutely, absolutely, but nice to have a change every so often. I think so. Uh, yeah, so... Just out of interest, what was the reaction like from, from uh, I don't know what you would call someone from Tehran, the Tehranites? Um, what was the reaction to the, from the locals to this influx of, of more global cuisine? Uh, the Tehranis, uh, they were obviously very open to different things. Um, there were very many different chains opening up. Uh, obviously, pizza is uh, popular and has been for 20, 30 years in the country, um, starting with a, a little pizza shop down an alleyway uh, near the uh, French embassy called Doctor's Alley. The, that was the very first pizza shop, and it's still open to this day. Amazing. And um, there's been a large trend in Asian cuisine, which we see in cities like London as well. So um, there's been a growth of Chinese restaurants, um, there was also uh, some restaurants dedicated only to Chinese eaters uh, in the city, uh, Interesting. So, which was quite fascinating. Uh, yeah, and sure. there were there, there were rumours of secret Chinese restaurants that only serve authentic Chinese food. There were obviously a growth of uh, Indian restaurants in the country, um, primarily from the uh, Indian community that has lived in Iran for several generations. Um, including the Taj Mahal, which was quite a famous one, and a few around Haftatiya Square as well. Fantastic. Well, thank you for, for sharing that. I think that's a nice little insight into into cuisine in Tehran. It's the sort of thing that you can find on Living in Tehran, the, the website. Daniel, unfortunately, we must move on to something slightly more more serious relating to uh, to the current crisis. One of the reasons why why we both thought that it would be good to chat was that Obviously, Iran has suffered dramatically from from COVID nineteen, the coronavirus. So I thought it would be really, really useful to to get your take on on what's happened there, or how Iran has dealt with it. I know you've been dealing with this a lot on Twitter recently, so I thought you could perhaps tell us a little bit about what's been going on there and and how how the state has tried to deal with the the crisis. Like many places, Iran was not prepared for um, an entirely new virus or disease. Um, and so it had to quickly uh, adjust its uh, healthcare sector. Um, it has, you know, belatedly caught up a lot with the situation uh, with the help of the World Health Organization and uh, other international, uh, Relief International was another one that's been helping out. Uh, several European countries have also given aid. It hasn't been able to be, uh, uh, attract the, uh, an emergency loan from the International Monetary Fund, which um, was a, roughly about $5 billion. Um, it has uh, been aided some money from the World Bank and Islamic Development Bank to deal with the situation. Um, but overall, the response from the country was slow at the uptake, like many other places, I should add. But um, it's been dealing with it uh, with um, a range of different measures, uh, including uh, uh, many of the uh, medicines that have been uh, touted elsewhere, including the Japanese uh, anti-malaria drug as well, and um, uh, 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 local development of ventilators have been 
reading recently. Right. Is there anything in particular that is is specific to the Iranian response that that you saw? I think one of the problems was um, in terms of their response uh, would how they dealt with the populace who generally don't have a uh, a respect for the authority uh, and uh, uh, rules. Um, so, uh, as we could see in the past few days, um, Tehran has become busy again. There has been a 75% increase, uh, I read, uh, in traffic density in the country in the past few days. Um, uh, the bazaars are all back open again. And uh, rules on social distancing, which are trying to be put in place inside the metro in the city uh, and elsewhere, have mostly fallen on deaf ears. So um, there is a there is a fear now that Iran is so ahead of the curve compared to, say, UK or other European countries, that there may be a second wave, which uh, the health authorities there have already said could possibly happen. And are they doing anything in particular to try and prevent that second wave? I mean, it strikes me that we're waking up to news today about how, um, how social distancing could could stay in, in operation for, for the next year or so. So is there anything that the Iranian state is doing to try and prevent that, that second wave, even though it's, it's opened up the bazaars, as you say, and, and life in Tehran appears to be moving back towards normal? I mean, there is, a, there is certain measures being put in place, but again, it's one of those things. Uh, the, the, the response, or at least the financial response to the situation has been uh, limited. Um, there have been, you know, extensions of loans, there have been loan deferrals, there's been a, a, a taxation relief, at least for certain companies. Um, so their response has been limited, but it, it, it's not enough to suffice to keep the people uh, to not social distance. Uh, uh, you know, according to initial data coming out, um, there's significant amounts of returning to normality, as you say. So, uh, it remains to be seen whether it's been the right strategy or um, there's a possibility that, you know, this could see a second spike. Right. And how is this affecting the, the political climate in Iran? I mean, it's it's such a, a complex political system with, with a whole host of fluid and interchangeable parts and also questions about um, succession with regard to the supreme leader. So has this this virus impacted on any of that or is it is it too soon to say i mean i think it would be too soon to say about uh, long-term succession plans uh, uh, you know there has been obviously a good clique of um, uh, people amongst the elite uh, who have been who have contracted the virus a few of them have died from it but the majority like elsewhere have survived um, so Apart from a few people taken out of the mix, um, it seems all normal at the moment. The, the one of the long-term uh, issues uh, is how this COVID-19 situation may increase uh, the tension amongst Iran's neighbours and obviously Tehran itself. Uh, we could see, you know, an increase in. Uh, it could be a catalyst for more regional aggression as we've seen in recent days. Um, uh, IRGC has taken, you know, a lot of credit for dealing with the situation in Iran in recent days. And 
they uh, yesterday um, successfully launched a rocket into space. Yeah. So their their plans haven't changed. Sure. Um, everything remains on track so far. It's interesting you say that about regional tensions, and and I'll talk a little bit about Trump in a minute. But um, strikes me that it's also a an opportunity for regional rapprochement. And I'm thinking in particular of of the way in which the Emiratis sense positive wishes to Iran in the early stages of this crisis. So I think it also offers that type of, of possibility for resetting tensions, perhaps. Yeah, I mean, uh, there has been some uh, movement on uh, across the Gulf uh, in, in recent weeks. Uh, the Qataris, the Emiratis have all offered uh, aid and helped out sending partial uh, shipments. Uh, the Turks, too, have sent some. Uh, Iran has now uh, reached a point where it believes it can now start sending out face masks to other countries regionally who are affected by it. Right. Um, so, uh, Such as where, some, Daniel? Uh, Sorry. Uh, yeah, so it, the Iranian president had a conversation with the Azeri president uh, yesterday who said Iran will use its uh, experience with... Uh, the COVID-19 epidemic to uh, help out Azerbaijan, which obviously has a much uh, less uh, uh, rate of infection uh, than Iran has, but uh, they have been saying these uh, to their, re- you know, their immediate neighbours. Uh, so, uh, but uh, with regards to like countries like Saudi Arabia, there hasn't been much uh, direct uh, contact. Uh, but Iran has sent out feelers to say that. It is quite open to a, a new round of negotiations and uh, friendship talks with the Saudis, with, with uh, regional neighbours, not talking directly, talking sure. indirectly. So, uh, yeah. sure, okay. Well, thank you for that. Let, let's move on to the the hostility then. Um, we know that that Iran has had a particularly fraught relationship with the United States, particularly under the 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 leadership of of Donald Trump. But things seem to have escalated again recently. What's happened there? Um, I mean, from my reading, the Donald Trump's tweet yesterday about shooting out of the air Iranian boats, which doesn't quite make complete sense. But uh, I did wonder if I'd <clears throat> missed something. Did Iran test a flying boat, or or was this just a, a Trumpian tweet? Uh, well, as according to the timeline, Trump tweeted that forty-five minutes after a, a ten-minute segment about an Iranian rocket being launched. Um, so we believe it's got something to do with that. Um, from what we can see, uh, Iran hasn't done anything directly uh, to uh, irk the Americans uh, apart from. But we, you have to see the context of Trump's tweet in the uh, in, in the market oil market. Uh, if there is a, a possible conflagration in the Persian Gulf, then the price of oil. What ultimately goes up, and in the past few days, it's been in negative territory, uh, up to nearly thirty-seven dollars a barrel. I think it was the other day for the uh, World West Texas Intermediate. So Trump's tweet immediately was response. Uh, uh, the market responded immediately to Trump's tweet, uh, and it's gone. Uh, Brent has gone above twenty dollars a barrel uh, as of last time I checked. So, are you suggesting that there's perhaps some nefarious reason? other than um, hostility towards Iran behind Trump's tweet? Uh, 
uh, there could be some ulterior motive uh, <laughs> right. in Trump's uh, 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 logic uh, to say that tweet because uh, the chances of a uh, all-out war with Iran or a, a limited conflagration, I don't think are that high at the moment. Yeah, I mean, given everything that's happened in the past however many years under under the Trump presidency and particularly in the early early days of 2020, now seems a particularly odd time for there to be a ratcheting up of tensions. Uh, yeah, I mean, from what we can see is that it, it, it just seemed to be quite an odd period. Uh, obviously, 50,000 Americans have died from COVID-19. So, I mean, his attention should primarily be on the US currently, but uh, um, it might be a way for him to deflect from the uh, internal pressure, domestic pressures rather. Sure. Yeah, there's certainly a, a rally around the flag effect, I think, at play here. But Daniel, you mentioned oil and particularly the, the price of, of US oil um, going into the negative. Given that you, you do quite a bit of work on oil and gas and energy, what what were the, the repercussions of this? And what was really driving the, the US oil price to drop as much as it did? Um, due to the global pandemic, uh, demand has dropped off completely. Uh, nobody's driving, nobody's commuting. There is uh, generally a very low uh, need for um, uh, uh, for oil and obviously petrol further down the lines. Uh, one country does want it. Obviously, it's China at the moment. Uh, oil tankers around the world are being used as storage facilities rather than shipping it now. There is uh, quite a backlog of oil on the market everywhere. Uh, and um, it's uh, been exacerbated. I mean, the price of oil has been low in recent months, obviously. Uh, Iran has been failed. Many countries needed a, a break-even point to make profit from their sale of oil. Iran, obviously, is one of them. And uh, uh, it hasn't been making that uh, the the COVID nineteen crisis on top of that has exacerbated the situation and left the uh, markets reeling in its wake. So where do you see the oil markets going? I mean, I'm asking you to gaze into a crystal ball right now, but obviously, given the impact of the oil markets on the global economy and and vice versa, I mean, it's a symbiotic relationship, of course. But but how do you see this playing out? I mean, how do I see the price of oil? Uh, uh, I wish I, I wish I knew. Uh, it's going to be a turbulent market, I can imagine, for at least another few months. Demand will remain low uh, unless countries decide and do a U-turn, like uh, Iran has done on its uh, opening up. Um, demand will remain low, and if the Europe European countries are anything to go by, they're going to remain shut for a while. So, um, you know. Uh, demand from China is obviously still there because China is operating again, but China can't uh, produce enough things for people because there's no demand for it right now. Sure. Um, so the whole system's out of whack. Yeah. So precarious times, worrying times, and all manner of 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 reasons um, here abroad and across the world. But Daniel, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been really interesting talking to you, and I've learned quite a lot about about the the various interconnected parts that are playing out in this in this time of crisis. So thank you for your insight. It's been a, a pleasure having you on and 
I hope to talk to you again sometime soon about these things in a slightly more positive atmosphere. Yeah, thanks for having me. Pleasure. As always, thanks for listening. Until next time.